Um, here at the end of John, I, I'm, I'm going to, I usually don't do this, but I, I'm going to start with just sort of a little explanation because I'm going to, because here at the beginning, these first two verses, uh, a, a lot of people, not just me, ha- have noticed that John is giving a, a so right or a, a, a polysyllogism. Um, it's a, a, you know, a, a syllogism. Is, uh, was a very common way of speaking in the Greek culture back then. It was sort of the predominant way of speaking. And it's not something that we're used to today, even if we think we are. We're, our culture really isn't based on talking in that fashion. It's different. And that, that difference was there back then, too. It's just always been there in the way that we talk. Um, it was just predominant this sort of analytic or syllogistic way uh, of talking. The way that we're sort of more used to is, you know, we just give out statements or things that we say as fact, and whether it is or isn't true is beside the point because it's how it strikes us. Um, it struck something in us, and so, so it's not so much whether it's tied to any kind of truth. What we're talking the truth is is, is that how it struck us. And, and so if you are talking to people and they're talking in these two different languages, you might say, you're just sort of going like this all the time. And it's not to say one is better or one is worse. For a long time in the church, uh, people felt like it was God talking in the syllogism here and that God is, you know, instituted uh, Western philosophy and all of the philosophers in God are one. I mean, the only person that I found who actually took the time to draw out this syllogism drew it out in a way that... uh, took the grace of God out of the situation when he talks about believing in Jesus and just left it in there and basically laid it out to show that the words of Jesus were the same as Aristotle, which is they're not. Um, so I don't want to say one is better or worse. It's just it's different. And so I, I couldn't figure out any other way to explain these verses than to just sort of go through the the syllogism a little bit, and I thought maybe it would help to just give, start with just a little bit of understanding the structure of when you're talking in that language, maybe you might say, I don't know. Uh, uh, probably the most common syllogism that people hear in school is uh, one where it says, you know, a, made, a major premise, all men are mortal. And then you have the minor premise, Socrates is a man. And then you have the conclusion, Socrates is mortal. It's sort of this trying to tie our language together in such a way that gives like a proof. And then that proof, the thought is, is that when you do that, it has more persuasion. And what it's set up for the syllogism, is that the major premise is supposed to be something that is pretty much accepted already. It's not something that needs to be argued. Like when he says all men are mortal, that's not something, you just assume, you know, that's an assumed thing. And, and so oftentimes in language, when you're talking in a syllogistic way, you don't even need to say the major conclusion, it's just sort of assumed. And that's where we come up with something called, a, uh, when that happens in language, they call it an enthymeme, which is you know, would you say Socrates is mortal because Socrates is a man? And so you see you've left that major. So, so that's the way that thinking works. Well, a, a linked or a chained or a, a so right, well, what it is is taking two of those thoughts, 
which basically has three components. A syllogism has three components. It's like A equals B, then B equals C, therefore A equals C, right? A linked one allows you to add in a fourth component. You can keep linking them down to add in more things. But what you do on a linked... Sorry, I know this is super boring. Just bear with me. I'm going to get through it all. But, but I want you to see why there's some things not mentioned in this. It's, it's because it's in this syllogistic form. So when you do a, a, a linked one, what it is is you just have four lines. You have the major premise, which is agreed upon. You have a minor premise. And then that minor premise, those two, leads you to a conclusion. But that conclusion isn't stated. And then that conclusion is the major premise of the next syllogism, and then you give a minor premise, and then you bring it to a conclusion. And so in the way of thinking, it's, you could actually talk in what that conclusion and the major premise is. It's just left out because of ease of use, but it's there in the thought. And there's some, those things are missing here, but that's because it's that thought. And so, uh, so what you have is you have a major premise, a minor premise, an assumed conclusion, an assumed major premise, then a minor premise, and then that leads you to a conclusion that is a combination of those two. Does that make sense? Okay. Sorry. That's it. Let me go through it with that in mind. The major premise that he states is the beginning, and this would be acceptable. This isn't... This is acceptable within the conversation that he's having to the people in the church. This is kind of a given. And this is what he says is a given. Everyone who believes or trusts uh, or relies on, you could use any of those words, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, is the word, or, or some versions translate Christ as Messiah, is born of God or begot of God. And Paul, when he talks about this, doesn't leave it as assumed because he knows he's dealing with um, people that may disagree with that. What, what he does is he actually goes through in, in a lot of his books and, and talks about, or letters, and, and says, look, people are coming into the church and they're saying that what defines us as children of God is the law of Moses, but that can't be. <laughs> Because Abraham is our father, and Abraham didn't have the law of Moses. That what defines us as children of God is not the law of Moses, it's the faith that Abraham had, and the faith that was described there as it says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So John is just merely saying here that, like, I think we've all got that, that that whether you're coming from a Jewish perspective or not, we're all looking at Abraham as our father, and the promise that Abraham had that he believed in, as Paul says, is that, you know, one way of phrasing it when God's promise to him was that in your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, that it's a promise of Jesus as the Messiah, that Abraham, what defined him as a child of God, is his faith that Jesus was going to be our Savior. And so that's what makes us. That's what we have in common, what makes us children of God. And that's assumed he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on that. Then the minor conclusion that comes after that, that's the point that needs, usually needs uh, some persuasion or some thought about, because if people can, can be 
become convinced that this second minor conclusion is true, then it naturally leads to the conclusion and naturally leads to the second syllogism, which leads to the conclusion too. Does that make sense? And this is what he says for the minor. Everyone who is begot, or everyone loves, it says father, but the words are everyone who loves, or everyone loves the one that begot them. Also, the one uh, that the ones that are begotten, and so what he's saying for the it's hard with the translation it makes it a little bit easier though. Saint Father, is he just says first, everyone who believes in Jesus is, and specifically he says the Christ. Specifically, it's this message that our relationship with God, the love, the good things that are coming to us of God are coming to us based on Jesus, specifically him as the Christ saving us. That if we have belief in that, then we are begot of God. And then he doesn't give a conditional thing. He just gives a statement. He says, those that are begot of God will love God and love the children of God. And he spent basically the whole book proving that point. If you look back at, uh, or, you know, giving the weight that's needed to get that minor premise. If you look back just even last week at the end of chapter 4 that leads all the way up to chapter 5, you can tell that's what he's talking about. He says, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God. You see, he's talking about that. And knows God. And, and whoever does not love does not know. He's just giving facts. Because God is love. And this is how God showed us his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. And then he says, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning or as a propitiation for our sins. He's going to come back to that here. He says, dear Fred, since God loved us, we ought also to love one another. What he's going through there is as a proof where he's trying to say, look, We become a child of God as we realize the saving grace that we see in Jesus. And and what that means is is we look around at life and we we see I'm all that I have and the good things that are happening in my life, I'm starting to see more and more that it's happening because God loves me and he's making up for all the mistakes. That that I need forgiveness and God keeps showing love on me as though I didn't. And the story of Jesus, what happens with Jesus, the the history of that reinforces and gives us, makes that message come clear. He says, as that happens, what happens is, is we start to see how much God really loves us. Instead of seeing things as I did this or I did that, what we see is, oh, God loves me. That's why this happened. If we don't see that, the message of the world is this good thing in my life happened because I did this and I did that and this happened. And when that, we follow that, is what John's been saying, then we don't see the love of God. And we don't see this message. The message of God is different that comes from Jesus, which is 
I didn't do the right thing, but it happened anyways. That's either some really random luck or it's coincidence or I don't know, I'm just not going to think about it. Let's just say I did it anyways. But if you really hold to that and trust in that message of Jesus, the conclusion that you come to is, I can't believe how much God loves me, that he made it happen even though I don't deserve it. And that he, and so that's the message of Jesus. And so he says, when that happens, something happens within us that causes us, that changes our life. It softens our heart, and we naturally start to, he doesn't even say, you don't even have to have a command. It's like once love starts stirring in your heart, as we said last week, it demands to be expressed. And so what he's saying is, is, This change that happens to us that's attributed to first us having faith in Jesus creates this situation where we see that we are, he says, you are the children of God. And then he says, this creates something where, you know, even though the analogy is messed up in our world because of all the stupid things we do, we know what the analogy should be. A father, a mother loves their child. They're not commanded. I mean, it's not like, you know, you get in the hospital and then they bring out this list and say, here's one of the commands. You need to love this baby. And the person says, I didn't think about that. Okay, I'm just, you know. No, there's something natural that's about it. And a child, as stupid as parents are, I don't know why, even in the worst case scenarios, there's this weird thing of love that they just can't, it almost makes kids angry sometimes when it's there. He's just saying there's another way that this comes about. There's something that happens there with this. And so that's the minor premise. Then what he says is the next minor premise If you were to look at that, you'd say, like, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah is sort of A. Born of God is B. Everyone born of God, B, loves the Father and the child as well. Then the conclusion of that would be everyone that believes in Jesus loves the Father and the children. And then the conclusion becoming the minor presence, which everyone that believes in Jesus, loves the, the father and the children. And then the minor premise he comes in that I was telling you, he brings in the fourth idea, which is the commands. And here's where he says, he says, loving the children of God by loving God and carrying out the commands. In fact, this is the love of God to, to do his commands. And so what he's saying there is the next minor premise that comes out is actually a pretty natural conclusion. If you say believing in Jesus means that we love God and love others, then loving God and loving others is the commands. <laughs> and that's not even a Christian concept, but it's just, it was for a long time, it was sort of known or assumed that the summation of the entire law is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. People came to Jesus, and Jesus says, how does it reach you? And this, they say, this is how I think it reads. You know, Jesus said that. Other people said that, that. So what he's saying there is he's just saying, 
if this is the case, that believing in Jesus causes us to love God and love others by this other means, then what we've done, by what we've done, it is doing the commands of God. They are being done. And then he gives the conclusion. He says, and commands are not heavy. They're not heavy. And the, the heavy is a reference to trusting in Jesus. What it is in Jesus, that's a quote that Jesus has. He describes trusting in him as saying, take on my yoke, my yoke is light. He's saying it's not heavy. Why is it not heavy? Because it's something that's coming from within us rather than something that's being imposed on us. It's coming from a change that's happening within us where we want this. It's not it's something that's like, you know, people have described it as it's now like a law of liberty in our heart. Or as Paul says, it's like now people don't even need the law if this happens because it's like your conscience then will just even express to you what the law is. And so... What he's saying is that people are coming in and telling you that there's saving grace of Jesus. There's the looking at life in terms of seeing that, that I'm just keep, I just keep on messing up, but, but God just keeps on working things out, that he loves me, he cares for me, things are happening on the basis of forgiveness, that there's this sense then that the commands of God are something other than that, and they're bearing weight on this. And in order to take the Bible seriously, you, you need to pull this in, and that it creates some sort of tension here. He says there is no tension or anything back and forth, because trusting in Jesus is doing the commands of God. In every sense of the word. He says, in fact, if you're really trusting in Jesus and you're seeing how much God loves you and that weight of seeing how much God loves you and that acceptance into his family, it does something in our heart. That's why the entire Bible says, I said what I was talking about was circumcise your heart. When the Savior comes, he's going to change our hearts. That what that does then is it doesn't perfectly create love. And he's going to talk about how, how it ends up working out. But it creates a desire, or what he says, you know, here really is to guard over the commands. And so here's where he talks about the conclusion of this. If we were to treat faith in Jesus in this idea of him being the Christ, the Messiah, faith that... And sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm taking the extra time to explain what each of these is because as soon as you say the word faith, people mean all sorts of things by it. But he's very clearly talking about something specific. It's faith that we did not get things right, we were not able to save ourselves, and no one, no human being was able to do that, but a human being needed to come down from outside our realm, God, came down and became one of us and did what we could not do. And so now God is justified in loving us even though we don't deserve it. And that love has always been there, but God solved the problem. If you have faith in our need for a Savior, faith that Jesus is the one saving us, then he's saying, Anything that anyone is trying to appeal to in terms of the law is 
already happening naturally, and there's no need to go into it and argue that. And if that's the case, then how, to, how does that push things forward? He says, This is uh, for everyone born of God, or begot of God, overcomes the world. And he just defined begot of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, this is what conquers the world. Not us doing the law, us believing in Jesus. That's what overcomes the world. And then he says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith, that faith in Jesus. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so he's saying, what does it mean by overcome the world? It's in the world we think, if I want this blessing in my life, I need to do this and this and this and this. Or A, B, C, whatever it might be. And he's saying, that what overcomes it is this trust that regardless of this, God's just going to bless me because he loves me and cares for me. And so then he says, this is the one. He explains Jesus, what it is we have faith in and what it is we're believing. He says, we're believing in someone who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Um, Water and blood are clearly everyone sees it that it's a reference to Jesus' life, two actual events that happen in his life. One is the water when he was baptized. And what he was baptized into was a repentance for sin. So part of what's being talked about here is us coming to a realization that we need repentance for sins. And, and, but it's not just us. What, what happened when Jesus came in to be baptized is John said, well, you have no need to be baptized. I, I need repentance, but you don't have anything. And Jesus said, no, just let it be done this way at this time. And what Jesus was saying is, I don't have anything that I need to repent for, but let's see what happens if I just relate to God based on repentance. And so he said, I'm just going to relate to God in the exact same way that all of you can only relate to God. I'm giving up everything else that I have, and I'm just going to relate to God even though I don't have to. I'm going to relate to him in the same way that all of you do, which is based on repentance. And God, the Holy Spirit, which he's about ready to say, made a statement then at that point and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And what was happening there is Jesus is, was making it clear to us that when we relate to God based on repentance, we are the children of God. You can't get any more love from God. There's no need to adhere to... Uh, that's the wrong way of it. There's no need to talk about commandments in terms of something that's going to gain us more favor with God. You can't get any more favor with God than you can at that moment of repentance. And that's why John says you know, in past chapters, you are the children of God. And so what the water is, is about the cleansing. So the water and the blood are also references to things that are talked about in the law. Let me hit on the blood, and then I'll talk about the law part. The blood is a reference, obviously, to his crucifixion when he died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. The propitiation that we read in chapter 4. 
what those two events confirm is their fulfillments of things that were talked about uh, throughout the law. Water was always cleansing. Uh, it was the idea that we actually can't come into or have a relationship with God because we're just too filthy. And water cleanses us. And the priests weren't told to wash with water only when they know they've done something wrong. They were just told, you always just wash with water. Because the assumed is, we're always in need of that. It's not something that's done based on an adherence to a law. The adherence to the law is to assume that you always need to be cleansed. Does that make sense? People are putting out, when they talk about the law, they put it out as though... This law now ushers in this new thing where we need to be cleansed when we break the law, but then when we do the right thing, we're... No, the the law actually states that we should always assume we're always in violation of the law. And that if something good has happened, it's an indicator that we've been cleansed for some reason. And that's that promise of Jesus. And then the blood was always atonement or a propitiation of saying in substitution. Something needs to happen to make this right, and we need some other sacrifice or some other atonement to come in. And so it's, he's detailing out by bringing those words up. And just as a side reference to this idea of, you know, going back to Jesus, uh, not needing to repent, but repenting anyways, when you put that into practice, you know, it's important to understand that you having an attitude of repentance or even saying that you're sorry for something doesn't need to connect to something that you see that you've done wrong. We always think of that. Well, I'd love to be able to repent, but I haven't done anything wrong. And, you know, and we won't move from that way of relating. We'll sometimes say, well, maybe I've done something wrong, and so, you know, I don't know. I mean, it feels weird repenting for something that you don't even... It's like Jesus moved into that realm of repentance without having need to move into that realm because what exists in that realm is just as good, if not better, than what you would have if you did. Does that make sense? So just as a side note of thing, there are definitely going to be times when you need to say you're sorry, even though you don't know that you've done anything wrong. It's fine. There's plenty of things that you can assume. Come in knowing that everyone needs to be washed. That's the law. The law is not, I need to figure out exactly what I've done. You're, we're just never going to be able to do that. That's a burden. He's getting to, but what makes it light is just, it's very difficult to move forward in a conversation thinking, I did this, and then let's point out what they did, and that, that's, a, that's a weight we can't bear. But isn't it easier just to come in and just say, I, I, you know, I'm just sorry. You, know, you, you don't even need to figure it out. Just know, I'm sorry. Anyways, he goes on and he says, he talks about the third thing, the water, the blood. There's this idea that we're cleansed or we're seen as righteous even though we aren't, but we're cleansed by Jesus. In other words, 
when we have faith in Jesus or we trust in Jesus as saving us, what we're trusting in is that God sees us as righteous even though we are not. And in our relationships with other people, that they will treat us as though we haven't harmed, even though we have. That we're, that's what we're trusting in. And then that somehow that God or Jesus, that we've done something wrong and the result should be this, but that God is going to work it out in some other way, that he is going to take that burden on himself and make it right. And that's where he talks about the third thing. He says, it is the Spirit who gives evidence because the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify or give evidence. The Spirit, the water, the blood, and the three are in agreement. What he's saying is that the Holy Spirit will come in and make things right or will do things. And that will be evidence of the water and the Spirit, that that things are working this way. In other words, the evidence that the Holy Spirit is doing is that, I don't know, I've got a bunch of kids, so like the kid analogy works for me. You know, and if it was the case, which is never the case, so this is probably a bad analogy, um, that people think your kids are good or something like that or there's something there. What is it that things go well with your kids because the Holy Spirit makes things well with them. And if you believe in what the world believes, you'll try everything you can to make it seem as though it's not something the Holy Spirit is just doing, that it's something that I followed this, that I like figured out from the Bible what the right way is to raise your kids, and I've been doing that, and that's why things are going well. Or that, you know, you don't even need to have the Bible. You could say Aristotle, I believe in that, and that this is why, or this is the system of this, and so this. And what he's saying is, is that if you were to just be quiet about it, what people would see is what he's about to say is the truth here because that's what the Holy Spirit brings out. The truth is, I'm a lousy parent. And you all would be able to, I mean, granted I do a lot to cover that up. I'm sorry. I try and be as honest as I can. You know, don't believe the lie. Just trust your gut on this. If it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. It's like, I'm a horrible parent, and to whatever extent things have gone well with my kids, it's just obviously a complete and utter gift of God. It's something the Holy Spirit is doing. And by doing it, what you see is evidence, like something good happened here, that's evidence. And the evidence of who you know me well as is messed up in this. And so that's evidence. And so then that leads you to the conclusion of the water and the blood. Does that make sense? He says they all three work together. And that's the truth. And that's something that God does to make that happen. And then he says, we accept human evidence, but God's evidence is greater because it is the evidence of God which he has given about his son. What, what he's saying is, is look, we, we all think in terms of evidence. We think, If I want to make a bunch of money, I need to do 
this and this and this. Or if I want to have security, then I need some money. And we look at, read different articles about how, like, what's the difference between a billionaire and the way that they raise their kids and we raise our kids? Or, you know, we look at, and we're, what we're doing is, it's just a very natural thing. We're just looking at different evidence and people in the world and us, we're all too willing to associate anything good that happens in our life with here's the evidence that I'm a good person or the way that you should do things. So we're looking at that. He says, fine, that's the way it works. You know, you look at evidence, you look at evidence. But he says, the evidence of God is evidence of something greater. What does he mean by that? If there's evidence that God loves... Look, let's take it away from God. What's better? Evidence that your parents love you because you got good grades or evidence that your parents love you because they're your parents? I mean, it's great to think that your parents love you or to feel like you've earned their achievement and they love you, but that kind of sucks too. And that's a huge burden. To feel like your parents' love is conditional? To feel that any kind of love is conditional? I mean, there might be evidence to that, and you could say, well, there's evidence to that. Okay. But if there's evidence of something better, he's saying, why is it we accept this, but we won't accept this? Why is it we accept this lie that everyone puts out, that they've accomplished this and this and this, but we are so unwilling to accept the fact that God just does stuff for us because he loves us and cares for us? Why are we so hesitant to accept the evidence of this? When this is, if you have to choose, this would be better. He says, those who believe in the Son of God accept this testimony. Those who do not believe God have made him out to be a liar. What he's saying is, is look, to the extent as believers that we try and bring the law in, and with it, we bring the law in under this guise that here's what God says is, yes, sometimes he loves us because we don't deserve it and, you know, that. But then these other times, there's evidence that he loves us because, you know, we've done the right thing. And so his love is based on what's earned, and it's also based here, and there's just this tension, and we just need to work that out. He says, when we do that and we make it out to be, here's this good thing that happened in my life. He says, the truth is God gave that based on Jesus and based on forgiveness. But when we steal that glory away and rob that temple and by saying, no, it's because I did this and this and this, and so I earned that, he says, we're not just robbing the glory of God or trying to take the glory that's due to him. What we're actually doing is making God out to be a liar. Because he's saying the Bible, God's word, does not say that our glory or the things that are good in our life are earned whatsoever. There's nothing in there about that. He's saying if we want to honor what the Bible has to say, honor Jesus, honor faith or belief that Jesus is our Savior because that's what God's been talking about since day one. 
honoring it is not pulling in some sort of result that's come from us doing something right. That's just making God a liar when we do that. He says, because they have not believed the testimony of God, which he's just talked about, the things that God does according to the promise of Jesus, that what God has given about his son. And this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life. And this life is in his son. And those who have the son have life. Those who do not have the son do not have life. He ties the idea of life here on earth to the idea of eternal life. And what he's saying is is that the testimony that we give, that God is giving and working out in our lives to everyone else, is it includes us living our life as though we're living it in eternal life. What does that mean? It means when we have eternal life, he's saying people are going to be able to tell that we're trusting in something that's different than what they're trusting in. In other words, when things go wrong or we're moving towards something. Everybody else is trusting in that I got to get this right or this right or someone else has got to get this right. And what he's saying is, is if, you really, if we really believe in Jesus and we really, it's not a matter of love, we're going to love, but what it's going to come down to is people are seeing that we're really not feeling compelled to trust that anyone has gotten anything right in order for God to bless us. What he's been saying to them is like, look, all you have to do, you don't even have to necessarily, but if you want to contribute, it's really more about just asking. (laughs) But you don't need to ask that anyone gets anything right. You can just ask that God just gives it to you. In other words, what's going to fix things isn't like giving someone the gift of understanding what they've done wrong and what you've done right and how they can fix things. And then it's like, that's just a ridiculous way of fixing things. It's not going to fix anything. He just says, you don't, you don't have to get anything. They don't have to get anything out right in reality because God just blesses us and takes care of us in spite of that all the time. And he's saying that takes a burden off of life. And people can see that. And he's saying to the extent that we allow people to see the truth in our life and if we can explain it and add to it and say, look, if you're seeing this is happening, it's not happening because I've done the right thing or I'm a good person or I've worked this out. It's just if you see something good, it's just because God's done it and he's given me forgiveness And he'll do the same thing for you. Those are words that reflect the truth. They reflect the testimony of God. And they reflect something quite a bit different than what anyone else has to offer or can say. But what he's saying is, is if we're going to interrupt that and instead 
say to people when they say, oh, wow, this happened. You go, well, let me tell you how it happened. <laughs> let me tell you what I did. You say, it would be better for us to just shut up at that point and just sit there. If that thought's going through our mind, just keep quiet and just let the testimony of the Holy Spirit speak. <laughs> because people will naturally look at what the evidence is and the evidence is they're going to look at your life and say, why is this happening to this person? <laughs> That'll come really natural. You'd be surprised at how easy it is for people to believe that you're inept, that this shouldn't, that you are undeserving of whatever. It is, you don't have to, it's not like you have to convince anybody. It's just natural. Why? Because it just comes from our heart. He says the testimony is about what God is doing. And what he is doing is blessing us and bringing good things into our life. And not just our life, but everybody. That's why he says God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous lot. The only difference is not that God is doing good for one group of people and not doing good for another group. The only distinction is is that one group, when the good happens, to the extent that we do, and if you're like me, most of what I present it is not this, so that's why I try and keep my mouth shut a lot of times. And if you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't do a good job of that even. But what I'm trying to say on this side, what John's trying to say on this side, is that the evidence that we have to look at is that there's good that's being brought into our lives without us deserving it. We're being treated as though we're righteous, even though we're clearly not. And when we see that, what we see then clearly is the love of God, and that love of God is changing because it relates this changing to us because it softens our hearts and creates this heart that wants to respond in love. And this other side is different. It's striving to make everything happen bearing this burden of like when things go wrong it's devastating now to myself my family to everyone that I care for I've you know lost my job there is no hope I've lost my house it's this burden that just bears down on us and it comes from us looking at the evidence of this other message which is basically an evidence that we're just condemned and we're going to die but this message is about God saying look In the midst of us death, Jesus says, you know, let the dead bury their own dead. We're all dying. But in the midst of that, we can see God's love. And he says, if we see it, and there's some small part of us that says, I want to respond to that. I see it, and I've got this other part pulling me this other way, and I see this, but I see this other part. And, And what it is, is it's a decision to say, Even though there's this other part of me pulling on this other evidence and this other way of thinking, there is tension within us on this message. But the decision to follow Jesus is to just say, Jesus, just see me as though I am just this one small part. Take that as me. That's who I want to identify as. I'm identifying as that part. I know I've got all this other stuff pulling me in my heart this way, but there's this small part just... Make that me. (laughs) And Jesus says, that's fine. That's totally fine. 
I'll see that speck that's in your heart of belief, of seeing this message. I'll honor it as you. And that's what he says. At that moment, what happens is then we're begot of God in that one small part. Does that make sense? Let's take a moment and we'll pray. Uh, Maybe everyone can stand as the band comes up. And uh, close your eyes and pray with me as we enter into these last couple songs. And as everyone's eyes are closed, if there's anyone that would, that's heart is stirring them and you'd like to accept Jesus as your Savior, uh, raise your hand and, and I'll pray with you. Okay, let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for the way you love us and you care for us. Lord, help us to grab a hold of this eternal life that you have and the evidence of that that we see every moment of the day. And help us to push aside that part of us that wants to take the glory, the part of us that wants to be the one that's earning it. And help us to just just more and more become convinced of the truth. Help us to more and more see the love that you have for us. And Lord, we thank you for the change that seeing your love does for us in our heart. And thank you for letting us be a part of this this saving, this promise of you being our Savior. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.